Calling all ninjas. Calling all ninjas. It's time for Lime Ninja Radio. Today on Lime Ninja Radio. I lost my vision at times. I lost my hearing intermittently. Um, I began hallucinating. I was having the most severe psychiatric symptoms you would hear from someone who has Bartonella and Lyme and or Babesia. Um, So I thought that I was dying. This podcast is sponsored by the Lyme Ninja Symptom Tracker. I'm so excited to tell you about our new Lyme Ninja Symptom Tracker. One of the things I hear over and over again, whether it's talking to a patient in my office or consulting over the phone with a client, is just how difficult it is to keep track of progress on their Lyme journey. Recording symptoms daily or even weekly gives them too many data points. There are so many ups and downs, twists and turns that at some point they get lost and confused. The Lyme Ninja Symptom Tracker takes all the guesswork out of tracking symptoms with a simple monthly questionnaire. Once a month is the perfect interval to see if that new supplement or protocol is working. Right now, when you take the Symptom Tracker questionnaire, we give you a simple composite score for the month. But we have big plans and the data you enter will not be lost as we roll out new features. Best of all, it's free. Just head on over to LimeNinjaRadio.com slash tracker and sign up. That's LimeNinjaRadio.com slash tracker. You'll be glad you did. Hello, I'm your host and acupuncturist McKay Rippey, and this is episode number 157 with social worker and Lime Ninja Rochelle Kana. Also, welcome our show producer and the brains behind Line Ninja Radio, Aurora. Hello. And in this episode, you will learn how Rochelle used Chinese medicine to recover from Lyme disease, how Lyme became a transformative experience to heal spiritually as well as physically, and her frustration with the doctors she went to that inspired her to create a course to teach social workers about the psychiatric symptoms of Lyme disease. Thank you, Aurora. Every journey through Lyme disease is different, and cookie-cutter approaches just don't work. You need to fight Lyme like a ninja, and that's why each week we bring you a new episode of Lyme Ninja Radio. The other thing, one of many other things, you're One laughing. of many other things. <laughs> we always have one more thing. Lyme is an international problem. And it's always cool to look on the stats each week and see who's tuned in, tuned in from all over the world. We have people from Birmingham, UK. I was going to say Alabama. Good no. grief. Sorry, UK. <laughs> Birmingham, the UK, to Etobicoke, Canada. I probably butchered that. Etobicoke? Name. Etobicoke, something like that. Canada, Copenhagen, Denmark, to Beek in the Netherlands. So Lyme is really an international problem. If you have friends internationally, Canada, UK, Ireland, Australia, New Zealand, Germany, yeah, share Lime Ninja with them. It's a great resource and they'll thank you for it. All right. Now for the top 10 of cities. It's uh, all U.S. roster this week. Come on, international people. Get in the fray. Starting at number 10 is Buffalo, New York. Number 9, Occidental, California. Number 8, Ashburn, Virginia. Number 7, Carmichael, California. Number 6, Ann Arbor, Michigan. Sorry, Ann Arbor, about the Wolverines and they're <laughs> getting hammered by Penn State, but I'm sure you'll get over it. 
Denver, Colorado. That was a college football reference <laughs> for all you non-football fans out there. Number five, Denver, Colorado. Number four, Spokane, Washington. Number three, Madison, Wisconsin. Number two, Chantilly, Virginia. And in the number one spot this week is Queen Creek, Arizona. Way, Way to go, go Queen Creek. <laughs> all right, Aurora, why don't you tell us a little bit more about today's guest, Rochelle Kana. Rochelle Kana is a social worker who is having severe psychiatric problems. While she was originally diagnosed with mercury toxicity, someone on a Facebook support page suggest- suggested that she had Lyme disease. She found a Chinese doctor and was able to heal from Lyme disease using acupuncture and Chinese medicine. She emphasizes that Lyme disease was a spiritually transformative experience, and her mission today is to educate therapists and social workers on how to identify psychiatric symptoms or medical conditions of medical conditions like Lyme disease. Thanks, Rora. And here's our interview with Rochelle Kana. This is Rochelle. Hi, Rochelle McKay Rippey from Lime Ninja Radio. Hi, how are you? Very well. Well, thank you for for um, reaching out and connecting back with me. I'm in the throes of getting the word out about what I'm doing, and I was happy to speak with you. Yeah, what you're doing is a little bit unique, or a lot unique, actually, and I'm very curious about getting into that. But before we dive in, why don't you just tell me a little bit about yourself? Like, what inspired you to be a social worker? Oh, in general? Yeah. Um, well, uh, so do you want the honest answer or do you want the politically correct answer? <laughs> How about both? <laughs> and I'll tell you I'll tell you mine for my acupuncture story, too. I'll come clean. <laughs> So, I mean, I was, I'm the emotive one in my family and I'm the helper in my family. So I come from a family of non-emotional people, like most Protestant backgrounds. And I like, I'm the emotive one. And so I just, I'm like everybody's, I take care of everybody. Okay. Um, yeah. So that's that. And then I really ended up falling in love with the process of psychotherapy, which I never intended necessarily to do, but is I find it creative and um, exciting, and I feel like it's an art as well as a bit of a science as well. So, yeah, I love what I'm doing and um, just ended up, I wanted to be an archaeologist, but maybe in another life. (laughs) (laughs) It's not dissimilar, is it? (laughs) Well, yeah, I'm digging into people's past and kind of trying to make sense of the past to have maybe a better future. It's a little overlap there, but, um, yeah. So that's, that's social work in a, in a nutshell. Now, um, you and, gr- and, and, now, and I would love to be an acupuncturist as well. So please tell <laughs> me about your, your love of acupuncture. Well, that's, uh, so my father was a patient. I was in school and home on break, he had an apartment on Connecticut Avenue, Washington, D.C. It was a winter afternoon. I'm sitting down. He had material around the house because he was a patient and had donated to the, this sounds so funny from, for the time, uh, the local acupuncture college. But there are only two 
in the country at that point, but we had a local one. And so I'm reading these materials and the back of my mind is like, what are you going to do with your life? Right? So there's a little voice in my head after reading the, some of these articles over actually a couple of years was you could do this. And then I answered back to the little voice, I am going to do this. And that was it. So I was about 21 and a half get, oh, getting ready to go on to 22. And I just made a completely non-rational, irrational. It wasn't decision. I mean, it, it wasn't irrational. It just wasn't based on any thinking at all. It just clicked. One of those weird moments. Now, the truth is, in all those articles, I skipped everything on like the technical aspect of acupuncture, like inserting needles and how you take care of people. And when I applied to go to school, I lied and said, why do you want to be acupuncture? I said, well, I'm so interested in taking care of people. And that was my politically correct. The truth is I just wanted to study acupuncture because I fell in love with the philosophy. So, and the happy ending of the story is my wife says that somewhere during acupuncture school, I found a heart and actually started caring about people. (laughs) So I'm not a psychopath. (laughs) Well, that was a good ending to the story. (laughs) Yeah. I was a young man. What do I know about taking care of people? Right. Anyway, figured it out. So I interrupted you. Oh, I just, I'm at one of my other projects is actually working to um, help social workers better understand acupuncture um, and the theories, the the different theories behind uh, different styles of acupuncture so that we can better, well, so we can have that framework when looking at a a client and also to make better referrals. Um, So, yeah, maybe that's something we could talk about at a later time. Absolutely. And how did you get interested in that? Because that is really unusual. Uh, So acupuncture and Chinese medicine was how I healed from Lyme disease. Uh. I never used antibiotics. Um, And for me, I think one of the things that I either get a chance to talk to people about or I don't, depending on who's listening, Mm -hmm. is that my Lyme disease experience was really a spiritual transformation. It really had nothing to, not that it didn't have anything to do with my body, but being sick was only the vehicle for me to be a better person. And I think acupuncture and Chinese medicine and things like homeopathy speak a little bit more to that part of a person than, you know, Western medicine does. Um, So it was a good fit. That's amazing. I just invited a physician. He's, he's was on the older side, and I, be, I believe he hasn't outright turned me down for the interview, but I believe he has in a gentle way, <laughs> in a, a, okay. non, a non-direct way. And um, basically, I you know I said I do this podcast, and I'm very interested in hearing. You know, I, I saw some of a YouTube video that he put out, and he wrote back and said, "Do you promote alternative?" Uh, therapies, alternative healthcare. And I said, we talk about it. Yes. I said, I wouldn't say I add, Oh, he said, do you advocate? I said, I wouldn't say I advocate. I inform people about it. And, you know, we also do Western medicine on the show as well. And uh, that was the last I heard of him. He said, well, I believe that the only way to heal from Lyme disease is to kill the bugs with antibiotics. I mean, he didn't say bugs, but essentially that's what he said. And it's just, it's in interviewing the hundreds of people, especially people who've had Lyme disease, 
it's always a spiritual transformation awakening that happens that clicks over the healing path. It always is. I mean, that's, that's, I love to get to that part of the story. And if you'll give me yours in a nutshell, cause we have so much else to talk about that. So what, where did you get Lyme? Do you think? And then what, what was that moment for you where all of a sudden everything clicked and I was like, okay, I mean, I'm sure you, you know, we reframe it as we're the, we're the hero of the story. We're the one in charge. We're the one who has to take charge. Am I correct? Yeah, there was definitely a moment or maybe a few moments where that clicked. So in terms of contracting Lyme, I could have had it for many years because I had, even though I considered myself a healthy person, I had a number of just kind of, you know, not so healthy symptoms, anxiety, um, insomnia, but things that a woman living in Manhattan in her 20s would probably think is normal, especially if she's working too hard and, <laughs> and whatever. And her lifestyle is just... Yes. Would have appeared healthy on the outside. And then I started going to India. So um, I married a man from India. And we were going back and forth every year. And progressively, you know, I had like the usual kind of symptoms of having different bugs in your body when you travel and what that is like. And then we went to Thailand. Um, and I believe that I possibly contracted what is Lyme or what I understand to be Lyme. And when I say Lyme, I say a number of bacteria and co-infections that we know very little about. So, um, uh, within four months of returning from Thailand, I had a, I was lifting weights at the time, um, and I came back from the gym after lifting a heavy back squat. I started having seizures that lasted for nine days without, mm. really without ceasing. So they were pretty intermittent seizure-like episodes. I was in and out of the hospital. I lost my vision at times. I lost my hearing intermittently. Um, I began hallucinating. I was having the most severe psychiatric symptoms you would hear from someone who has Bartonella and Lyme and or Babesia. Yeah. Um, so I thought that I was dying. Um, I've, dra- I've lost like 16 pounds in a matter of 10 days or something. Um, and I'm not a very big person anyway. So that was pretty devastating. And I looked terrible. Um, and then I had no idea what was happening to me. And I... Through, through some prayer and through dreams and through a bunch of really going back to my spiritual roots, I found that I had Lyme disease. And that, that actually came through Mercury Detox Facebook group. So a Facebook group diagnosed me yes. with having Lyme disease. Yep. Um, I had two mercury fillings. So all my symptoms kept coming up, mercury toxicity. So I joined this mercury... Facebook group. I had my teeth removed, but she had the fillings um, and really had severe psychiatric symptoms, possibly due to being exposed to the mercury again while I was already immune compromised. At the time, I knew nothing about Lyme disease. And they said, "Hun, you probably have Lyme disease, so go to the doctor. And then down the rabbit hole I go. Um, I found a Chinese doctor mm-hmm. in Midtown. And I only picked him because he was the chief. Um, all of these other Lyme clinics in the area, you know, you're upwards of $1,200 for the first session. Yeah. And I 
Uh, I didn't know any better. Um, Now, talking to doctors, I probably should have been on a pick line immediately. Mm -hmm. Um, But I didn't know, so I went to a doctor, and I started on herbs, and within about a month and a half, my neurological symptoms and my psychiatric symptoms drastically reduced. Um, So clearly, I had Lyme. Yeah, it's an amazing story. And then, so tell me about the, what, when is this turning point, your spiritual turning point? So during those nine days, I was having, so I was in and out of consciousness because of the seizures. So during that time, I had one part of a, I guess you could say an awakening due to the severe pain that I was in. So I think pain can kind of thrust us into an awakening just on its own. Um, not I think, I know, that's what happened. And that happened, and then somewhere along the way, I ended up um, going to see a homeopath within the first month or month and a half of me being really sick. And I, I knew nothing about homeopathy. I did not believe in homeopathy even after I heard about it, but at this I would have done just about anything to feel better. So I went for this, uh, what I thought was a really strange homeopathic session. It was really, it was like two and a half hours long. They were asking me all kinds of personal questions, and I didn't understand why. Mm -hmm. And then a couple of weeks later, the person wrote to me and sent me the remedy. I was like, okay, whatever. I take the remedy, and I have two really intense dreams that, clearly told me that I was that I was already healed spiritually and that my body was just going to take some time to get better. And so it was really the homeopathy was kind of the push that told me you're going to get better. Um, and from that point on, I wasn't worried about my body physically healing. And in a lot of ways, I'm, I'm much healthier now than what I was before I had Lyme. Um, But my body did take, it took about another year and a half of recovery for my body to catch up. Um, But yeah, homeopathy was a big part of my spiritual awakening, and that happened through dreams. Now, you're particularly interested in dreams and dream interpretation, and tell me a little bit about that. My interest in yes, so, and well, how you for, yeah, and you, how you use it in your practice, and it's it's not just right; it's a big part of what you do, or part of what you do. I don't know if it's a big part, but yeah, I spend a lot of time looking at symbols and how we relate to things in general, um, and we see this in shamanic work. We see it obviously in classical, um, in Jungian psychotherapy and psychoanalysis, and I have. I've benefited tremendously from looking at and listening to the symbols in my dreams and in my waking life. So if we're doing psychotherapy and someone is interested in dream work, we definitely incorporate it. Um, and sometimes what we get in our dreams is not always, we don't always get it right away what it was. So for me, it was a pretty literal, the healing dream was actually a white snake coming out my forehead. <laughs> and exiting my body and landing on the ground in front of me. And, and I woke up and I told my husband, I said, I'm just terrified because I had this very vivid, vivid dream that a white snake came out of my forehead. And he said, well, aren't you, aren't you glad that it came out? Like, 
it came out. (laughs) (laughs) I said, oh, yeah, you're right. Now that you mention it. (laughs) Now that you mention it, I don't have a giant white snake in my forehead. So, but the symbology of snakes in healing and in most spiritual cultures is like, that's it. That's your kundalini awakening. If you're into yoga, that is your, that is your holding a serpent. If you're a snake handler in the South, you know, that, that is healing and that is overcoming poison and illness. So, um, yeah, it was pretty obvious right then that I don't really have anything else to worry about in terms of a disease. That's amazing. Now, it's very interesting. My first acupuncture teacher's name's Gary Dolwich. His background was Jungian uh, psychology. And so he came at, uh, I was trained as a five-element acupuncturist. He came at acupuncture and the five elements and the officials from the Jungian standpoint. And he's actually come out with a book that mirrored his teaching for us. So we we came, I came early on with this the the whole idea of archetypes and 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 patterns and and kind of universal understanding that underlies you know a culture or even cross culture so it's it's fascinating to hear you talk about that it takes me way back yeah it's uh it's pretty amazing i worked with someone on dreams just last night and it's it's a fun part of my practice it's a fun part of of my my experiencing the world too do you think Dreams are necessary to heal, like just almost like from a brain neuroscience point of view. Do you think that's part of the healing process? Oh, gee, I think no, I definitely just an, couldn't. I'm just asking I, your I opinion. I definitely don't want to say that for everyone. Um, I do know that it's a, I would say that it's really um, a resource. Mm-hmm. And a blessing if you're able to access your dreams and okay. use them in your waking life. So is it absolutely necessary? No, I, I don't think so. There are other ways that we access information. Mm-hmm. Um, but is it fun? And is it just a really creative way that the mind helps us get better? Yes, mm-hmm. absolutely. Yeah, and I was, wasn't even meaning are you able to access your dreams and interpret them, but just the... That sort of state that the that the brain goes into. Because so many people with Lyme disease have insomnia, right? And they're yeah. and they're just not sleeping well, and their sleep patterns are so disrupted. And you know, it's there's really there's. I was researching nitric oxide. It turns out nitric oxide, particularly endothelial. I'm sorry, not endothelial, but um, neuronal nitric oxide plays a big role in the REM sleep. And getting us into that state. I was just fascinated by that. So one of the things that happens is as we get older, we don't produce as much nitric oxide and we lose our ability to rebound sleep, it turns out. And they're theorizing that the nitric oxide might have a chemical role in all that. So the whole sleep has just always fascinated me. Uh, from from day one, learning about it, you know, in, in acupuncture school, so that's great. Now moving right along here, so you've had this amazing journey into into and out of Lyme disease, and you have your professional background doing what you're doing as a, a therapist, and now you're putting it all together. And so, tell me. And, and also with this, also you, you're looking to train other therapists, which I think is so helpful. 
I mean, we need, I keep on saying that right now, just, just like what happened with you, Lyme disease is diagnosed over the backyard fence, right? It's done through Facebook groups. It's done literally conversations with neighbors. Unfortunately, the doctors just aren't, aren't quite up to speed yet. And maybe with this new testing that'll come online in a few years, it won't be so much of a problem. But right now, and so you see this as a real opportunity for other therapists to kind of get clued into Lyme disease. Now, why? Why? I actually have a very personal reason why I want to do this. Um, and it's not just because I had Lyme disease. So one of the first people that I went to, well, that just I went to a mishmash of, of physicians and therapists, just like everybody else who was trying to find out what's wrong. Um, and one of the people that I went to, which I unknow unwittingly was most hopeful about was I'd exhausted traditional medical doctors and I why don't I go to a psychologist maybe I really am crazy because I'd been told multiple times by doctors that I was kind of just losing it and I probably needed Prozac or Valium or something to just level me out so I had a list of all of my symptoms and I went to a psychologist in Midtown Manhattan at a fancy institute um, and I go there and I show her my list of physical and psychiatric symptoms. And I've worked in, with severely psychiatric people for, um, for many years. And I always intuitively knew, you know, there's something else going on with these people. They're, yeah. they're always cold. They don't smell good. Their teeth are bad. Their diet is, you know, there are a host of health problems that come along with mental illness. Yeah. So I, I go and I said, I'm having all of these symptoms. Can you help me? And she looks at me and she says, you know, I really, I'm confirming what all the other doctors are saying. I really think you're just having a psychotic break. Mm-hmm. And I'm, I'm thinking you just need to go inpatient. And that's, you know, what if you just need like a heavy intensive yes. and, yeah. and something. And shock something, therapy while we're at it or something. Right. right? Yeah. Something heavy. Yeah. And I left there and it finally dawned on me that, wow, I'm really pissed off mm-hmm. um, and I'm disappointed because it, I know from my background, if a person came into my office, no history of psychosis, no history of health issues, and they came in and they said, I need help and here are all of my symptoms that I do, and this is the thing that I am teaching everyone first. So I'm going to go ahead and give you lesson number one of my course for a therapist. Okay is that I first rule out medical. Mm-hmm. In our education, we are always required. It, it is Mental Health 101, rule out medical. And then there's not another class about how to rule out medical. Uh, not there, really? there might be a, a brief talk about, oh, you might want to have them check their thyroid, but then there's no discussion about how the thyroid tests are dramatically inaccurate and that's not right. And for me to be a competent therapist, I essentially need to go to medical school. Yes. And I don't have enough time in my life to go back to medical school. So my the rest of my mission in my career is to educate therapists as much as possible to be as knowledgeable in medical conditions that will provoke severe psychiatric illness. And, the, and one of the number one, the fastest growing infectious disease in the country dun, is da, Lyme da, disease. That's right. So if, if you don't learn anything else when you come out of school to be a therapist, you better know about systemic infection. 
So are because you? F- I promise you're seeing them. Are you familiar with Robert Bransfield? Dr. Bransfield. Yes. Uh, no, I may be getting him mixed up with, with a, a different doctor, so please remind me. So he's a psychiatrist, and he came to Lyme disease through his psychiatric practice. And he sounds a lot like you. He says, look, as a psychiatrist, now they do have an MD, right? As a psychiatrist, if you're doing your job, you should not overlook these physical, the physical side of things. And he had the experience of patients coming in uh, and actually one particular patient. So his spiritual awakening happened on the other side of the, the lab coat, so to speak. Anyway, he came in and it was clear that this person had something else going on and he thought it might be some sort of affection. He started the person's antibiotics instead of psychiatric drugs and the person got better within two weeks. Um, or right. started, started showing improvement, you know, and let's not say it's a necessarily miracle cure, but so that's how he came to do it. So he's just about retired. Actually for a while, he was the head of ILADS. He was the president of ILADS. Um, and he, he, and that's why I want to connect you to, uh, at least so you're aware of him. So he's, he's kind of in the background running groups for psychiatrists and other, um, uh, mental health professionals. So he would be a good person to, uh, at least c- contact with. Okay, and, I, and I think I'm yeah. pretty sure he's in New Jersey too. I think he's pretty local to you. He's pretty close. I see. You know, I may have actually. He has the only research on Lyme disease and suicide. Ha! Huh, that might be him. Yeah. That might. Yeah. Be him. Now I know who you're talking about. Yeah. yeah. So I think back to back to you. Enough about Bob. <laughs> <laughs> Enough about Bob. Let's talk about me. <laughs> no, back to what you're doing. And it's, it is so amazingly critical and it's, it's so important. And exactly what you said, it's, there's only so much time professionals have to learn everything that's out there. I mean, that's one thing that I like about my job as an acupuncturist is my training is in moving energy around with needles, right? And that's kind of what I do. And then I can kind of like skipping stones hit the surface on a lot of different things. So I've got a lot of different things kind of bouncing around in my mind, whereas a physician, you know, or a psychiatrist, I mean, they really have to do the differential diagnosis and they have to do it fairly quickly. And especially these days where if they're working in a clinical setting that's run by a hospital, they've got five, seven minutes, maybe 15 with a new patient. And how are you going to get that information like you did with your homeopath, you know, hours of conversation? I mean, my first session with a patient is is three hours long. But, but if we can bring, if we can just question the diagnosis like you're doing, it's like, could it, could it be Lyme disease? I mean, that's my favorite phrase. When I go speak to rotary clubs, I just want to leave them with, could it be Lyme disease? Yeah, I, I think that it just having on the radar, and I mean, look, it would be a huge step if people would admit Lyme disease actually happens in most places, um, and we're still a ways off from that. But I think that's definitely, it's a, it's a whole different landscape, even from two years ago when I was sick. I think there's been tremendous amount of awareness made, and we definitely need doctors to at least take a look at their weak spot and acknowledge where they are. And, hey, that's not a big deal. If your weak spot is not diagnosing a systemic infection, 
then at least have somewhere on the radar that somebody's looking at that. I mean, that's that's a good clinician is that you fill in your weak spot. And so you're going to be doing or are doing trainings for uh, LC. I always get it wrong. Licensed clinical LCSW, LCSWs on how to recognize Lyme disease. Is that what you're doing? Yes. So how to be Lyme literate. And Lyme literate doesn't have, a, I guess, a uh, specific definition as of yet. But looking at what are the things that might be coming up, what are the common things. And, and I'm also going to be including common experiences that I've seen personally in my practice around what people need when they have Lyme disease. Um, and that's so the course is going to launch the beginning of the year. Um, in January, and uh, it's open to any mental health clinicians, but I'm hoping to be CEU uh, certified with social workers first and then other mental health clinicians, but anyone could take the course. That's beautiful. And since you bring this up, and this is where I wanted to go next, is bring it down from the general into the specific. So people going through chronic illness in general have a lot on their hands. Their journey is not easy. And then Lyme disease and similar things have their own particular twist. So when somebody's in your practices, like what do you see and what, I don't know, somebody out there listening who's, you know, struggling, you know, they're trying to figure out the medical side of things, right? What supplements to take, what herbs to take, what antibiotics, what's the timing, blah, 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 blah. And oftentimes we forget about the softer side of things, right? It's like if if the glass is half empty every day, you know, you wake up every morning, it's like, oh, my God, this isn't going to work. At some point, you know, that could precipitate a crisis in and of itself. So what do you see with Lyme disease people and chronic illness people? Where, where do they need to be careful? How can they take care of themselves? So... Specifically for people who are experiencing Lyme disease, I think one of the most important things to remember is to be as gentle as possible with yourself. One of the things that I really held on to when I was really, really ill was I had I had been doing CrossFit for two years before I got sick. And the founder of CrossFit, Greg Glassman, his his um, whole reason for starting CrossFit was because he wanted to see everyone and have everyone view themselves as an athlete. And even if you didn't have an athletic background, the possibility that you could be athletic and be an athlete is there for you. And he created a space that way. And I took that into my healing and said, you know, my body is working 30 times harder for me than it ever has in my life. And Essentially, my internal organs are acting like an athlete. Yes. So what would an athlete need to thrive in this environment? If I was just, you know, training for the the heavyweight boxing match, <laughs> if I was up against Mayweather, like what, what does my body need? And gee, if we knew how much athletes put into repair and recovery, I mean, look. What are, that's, a, that's a full-time job, what they're doing. Absolutely. They are accessing every resource, and it doesn't have to take a lot of money, so I just want to squash that right now. I don't have the resources of a professional athlete. That's not an excuse. Everybody can jump on a trampoline. Everybody can skin brush. Everybody can eat decent food. Everybody can cut out sugar. So all these things with a lot of love and with a lot of understanding that your body is working 
harder than it ever has before. So I've heard other people say, you know, be kind to yourself, be gentle. I believe that's a phrase you use. And you talk about some, some specific kind of mindset, but what, what do you mean like specifically like be gentle? Are you talking about like how you talk to yourself? What, what does be gentle really mean? Yes. So a lot of the things that I do in a session with people is that internal dialogue with how we relate to ourselves. So stopping patterns of abuse. If you wouldn't say it to your kids or a stranger internally, are you aware of that you're saying it to yourself? Is that something that needs to be looked at? So Louise Hay is a wonderful reference of just how to start changing that internal dialogue to one of love and understanding and acceptance wherever you are. Um, I hear a lot of people in the Lyme world talk about needing to overcome anger and resentment. I think um, bacterial infections, systemic infections in general, they're very agitating to the nervous system, and they literally cause us rage. So whether you, what came first, the chicken or the egg, it doesn't matter. I had rage. Boy, did I have rage with Bartonella, and I think anybody who has that can understand that and it needs to be dealt with. And there are the immune system responds so well when we internally change our dialogue about things like resentment and rage. That's not woo. That is science. A different dialogue makes a different immune system. We forget about those direct connections. And so there's a new part of that too. It's, so it's not only like neurological up to the brain, but it also affects, it turns out it affects our gut and the gut biome. I was just listening to some lectures on that, whether our emotional state, our mental state can actually affect which bacteria thrive in our gut. It's just so crazily interrelated. And I've got, I've got a funny story here too. So part of uh, being kind to yourself and, and self-awareness, I, a few years ago, I decided I was going to stop cussing. <laughs> okay. So I started paying attention to when I was cussing and it turned out most of my cussing, like 95% was directed at myself. Interesting. Yeah. yeah. It okay. was really yeah. interesting. It's like, okay, there's something to look at here. <laughs> it's not just, you have a potty mouth. <laughs> right. So, so thank you for, for kind of highlighting what that means to be kind to yourself or, or gentle with yourself. I think, I think that's so important and bringing out the, really the physiological basis for this. Like, where's this rage coming from? Sometimes it's not your rage. It can be the bacteria's rage. And I think the same goes through. I'd like you to touch on also kind of the suicidal ideations, because especially with the neurological line, that seems to crop out quite, crop up quite a bit also. So that is the first thing that I do with any patient or family that comes into my office is I have an obligation to make sure that they're safe. And I was trained it through doing outpatient community mental health. We did a lot. I would spend whole days working with a number of people who were suicidal or in crisis. So I have a strong background of managing crisis. And I think for people in the Lyme community, it's important to normalize that suicidal ideations, homicidal ideations as well, are they are normal when we are in a state of crisis meaning our body has been pushed to the limit and we've gone beyond our limit. 
And it's not that there's something inherently flawed with you, that you're thinking this way, if there's nothing to be ashamed of, that it is the body's only response. When the mind doesn't have a way out, it's going to find a way out because its protective obligation is that you're okay. And if it looks around and says, that's too stressful, that's too stressful, that's too stressful, well, you better check out. That's its answer. And there's always a better answer thing to do is to work with somebody so that you can expand your options and find a better answer. It's not that there's something inherently wrong with you or that you really want to die most of the time. It's that you've run out of options. And that's, you know, you bring up indirectly hope, right? I mean, essentially that's the lo- the lack of hope. And that's one of the, 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 the carving on the gate and one of Dante's gates of hell or circles of hell was abandon hope all ye enter, right? It's like one of the right. gates of hell where there's just despair. And, and that goes back to also the, the standard medical community and their lack of awareness of Lyme and treatment options. It's like, well, you know, we've given you your three weeks of antibiotics and actually, you know, we went out of our way and we gave you three months instead of three weeks and you're still sick. sick. It can't be Lyme disease. There's no way it's still active because we know we've killed that. Um, perhaps, you know, good luck. You know, maybe they would refer out if they were, you know, feeling really <laughs> generous to uh, uh, a mental health professional, right? Maybe they would just prescribe uh, something right there in the office. And... You know, this is where, this is where it gets so interesting. So let's, since you are a big picture, you're a system thinker as well, because you're doing all these things for the community as well. It's like, what, what needs to shift so that the options are out there? It's like the doctor that I talked to earlier, where he said, well, you know, if you, if you're doing anything beyond antibiotics, you know, thanks. I don't want to talk to you. It's like, what, what needs to shift out there? Well, with that statement, I would say a little bit of compassion. Um, I think along something as simple for a physician to say would be, you know, are you okay? And not just are you okay, but like, look, are you really mentally okay right now? Do you need some support? A, A physician's number one responsibility also is that they keep us safe. And if they're not looking at things like despair and, and risk of suicidality in their office, then they're not doing their job either. And again, if, if you as a physician are not capable of and don't have enough time to administer a suicide assessment scale, then have somebody, have a coach, have the admin, hand it to them when they sign in. This is not a hard thing to do. And having that base level of awareness of where are my priorities? My priority is that every person that comes into my office is safe and made to feel safe. Um, I think that's a pretty basic one that we can kind of go back to and review. There's a long line uh, tradition in, in most old forms of medicine, whether it's Ayurvedic or acupuncture Chinese medicine, where there's a responsibility of the healer to take care of his or herself at a deep level so that compassion can be present 
that we can manifest that compassion. Some days, come on, let's, we're human beings too. It's like, you don't really want to be compassionate maybe, but it's, it is your job. And, you know, I, we, we get, we get so stuck on the technical side of things that we forget part of, part of the healing is just being present and compassionate for somebody. Some, sometimes that's the only medicine, right? Is compassion is to hold somebody's hand because maybe they're, that's, that's it. So you bring, you bring up. Yeah. And I think though, you also brought up another good point that could be a whole other episode, (laughs) which is the, (laughs) um, the desperate need. And I, I, put responsibility on both physicians and people who access health care, but the desperate need to take better care of our physicians. And I think the more that they're neglected and overworked and underpaid and demand put on demands on them that are unreasonable. I mean, they have a high, I don't know the, the suicide risk of physicians compared to the suicide risk of people with Lyme disease, but we know that physicians have a high and ever growing suicide risk. So you, I think you're on to something in terms of how, why have we gotten away from compassion for everybody that's in the medical system, not just the patient. Yes. You know, it's, I try to keep that in mind when so much anger gets directed at a particular physician or even just the system itself. It's like most of these men and women in the system aren't there to cause problems. They really aren't. Uh, they got into, into healthcare for honest reasons and good reasons. And just things, things come, the wheels fall off the bus. It's much easier to can, you know, to concoct a conspiracy theory to explain it all rather than just really is, th- are things just this messy? And, you know, sometimes I think they're just, they're just that messy. And, and you bring up a good point, actually a couple of minutes ago here, you talk about families coming in. Do you encourage, the people in the family of the person with Lyme disease to come in to just get their minds wrapped around that this person isn't crazy and there's something really significant going on. Yes, I definitely see family members um, who who don't have Lyme themselves, but they are experiencing this along with their loved one. Um, and look, we don't live in a bubble. I uh, I refer to. HIV treatment and the way we adapted to provide quality care for people with HIV. As we all know, HIV didn't start out as a as a disease that that millions of grants per year were funded by the federal government so that people could be taken care of. We actually started off rejecting them in our communities. And I think the HIV model where it has adapted to, which is group work, family collaboration, whole centers that are there to support someone who has a compromised immune system. I mean, this is a structure and system that needs to be in place for anybody with a systemic infection. Um, People being sensitive to it in general. And I think there was a big shift there, and that's what's coming I, I happen to agree with you. I think things have really shifted. And like you said, it's, it, there's been a recent shift. Now, are we there yet? No, 
but one of the corners that we need to turn has definitely been turned, and it's definitely out there in the public awareness. And whether it's the the celebrities who are, have have Lyme who are out there speaking about it, or just enough of people in day to day conversations talking about their experience with Lyme disease, whatever's happened, it has changed, and that's the first part of the change. And then the 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 systems, the organizations, the bureaucracies—they're the slowest to change. Right, they're the slowest to change. So the, they will come around. They will, especially with this new testing. Oh, yeah, Rochelle, you have been amazingly generous with your time and dodging traffic. <laughs> <laughs> and, thank uh, you for bearing with me. You no, know, it's no problem at all. And I just wanted to thank you and give you the last word. If somebody's in the New York City area and they want to contact you, how do they do that? Yes, you can. Uh, so I'll send you the link. So my website is rochellecona.com. I am at 26 East 36th Street. I'm, I'm in a wellness center called Tornazol Wellness. Um, and you can find my information with this interview. And I'm happy to, to get on the phone with anybody and, and answer questions that they might have or just direct you to a resource. Great. So that applies to whether you're a patient or whether you're a professional looking to get some training in this area as well. And with with that said, and anything else that I didn't ask you about that you want to drop in this, this bucket? No, I would just tell everyone to just be Stop torturing yourself. Feel good as, <laughs> as much as possible. <laughs> I like that. Stop torturing yourself. Well said. If you have any questions, comments, or feedback about our interview with Rochelle Kana, please send them to us at feedback at LimeNinjaRadio.com. That's feedback at LimeNinjaRadio.com. And if we read your feedback on the air, we'll send you a nice little bit of Lime Ninja swag. So you'll look like a ninja too. Listening to this interview was fascinating. And throughout the course of it, I kept coming back to this memory I of my sister telling me about an article she once read about shamanism. Okay. Of of all things, I know. Um, but as she was telling me of this, she was saying that in ancient societies, the role of the shaman was to, I'm paraphrasing obviously, but to define the line between the known and the unknown. And how they were able to do it is because the shamans were the one whose role it was to journey basically beyond into the unknown and then come back and say, this is the line here. So we need to replace Lyme literate doctor with shaman. I mean, (laughs) Lyme shaman. I mean, mean, we're already Lyme ninjas. I know, no, but it's like, (laughs) no, but it's so true because everybody who comes into my office and I suppose the people who get better quickly from Lyme disease don't fit in this category. But if you've got chronic Lyme, it's always a matter of the known and the unknown. And they're at least in equal parts. And oftentimes the unknown is more prevalent than the known. And that's one of the big issues with Lyme disease is we, there's so much we don't know and how to treat and how to recover fully. And each path 
into recovery, it seems a little bit different. Mm-hmm. Not everything works for everybody. And that's that's just the nature of the beast right now. Nobody's cracked the code. Somebody somewhere will. And when that happens, we'll all be able to take the short path, the shortcut yeah. to healing. But in the meantime, we do have to wander a little bit, take our shamanic journey. Yeah. <laughs> healing yeah. journey. Exactly. All right. If you like what we're doing here at Lime Ninja Radio, please head on over to iTunes and leave us a review. We greatly appreciate it. It helps get the word out about this podcast iTunes is all about the numbers and their algorithms. And if you leave a comment for us, it helps us move quickly up the charts, so to speak, and so that people can find us. So they're not, we're not buried underneath like healthy health, house plants podcast and things <laughs> like that. Yeah. So we, we'd like yeah. to be up there above healthy house plant podcast. That's not a real podcast. I'm making it up. So don't send hate mail if you like house plants because we like house plants too. It's just what came to mind. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, help us stay at the top of the iTunes rankings by leaving a comment. You just head on over there. You'll see the place where to look, search for Lime Ninja Radio. You'll see the place to leave comments. Leave us five stars. Or if you hate us, let us know too. You can send an email at feedback at LimeNinjaRadio.com or even leave it in the comments because we know we're not perfect and we use constructive criticism as a way to get better. Yes, indeed. Also, if you like what you heard, I don't know, this week and you want to hear more, you can sign up for Ninja Nuggets. Ninja Nuggets. Which I put out once weekly. You can find those by going on to LimeNinjaRadio.com and signing up for the mailing list. And you can find fun news. Interesting. Interesting. Facts. Stay up with what's going on in the Lime world. And so what's new in the Lime world this week? Well, like this week, the University of Maryland, the Agricultural Research Service, and Howard County Department of Recreation and Parks um, have worked together to develop a kind of deer feeder that can also apply insecticide. That's cool. Yes. So when the deer goes up and gets fed, then they get sprayed for the ticks and it kills the ticks. Yeah. So I'll read a quote. It's like they developed a feature with a central, quote unquote, bait dispenser surrounded by paint rollers coated with ticicide. And deers that feed brush against the rollers, applying ticicide to their ears and neck. Really? Ticicide? Ticicide. I know. I know. It's silly, but... Okay. It kills ticks. It, it kills ticks. That's on one hand, part. we're feeding deer. On the second, on the other hand, it kills ticks. All right. Every little bit helps. Thanks, Aurora. And last, as you longtime Lime Ninjas know, this podcast would not be complete unless we left you with the Lime Ninja fact of the day. Did you know a ninja once won this title of Iron Chef by cooking instant ramen noodles? <laughs> Lime Ninja Radio is a purely public broadcast and is not intended to be personalized medical advice for any individual's specific situation. Each individual's medical situation is unique and Lime Ninja Radio should not be relied upon and or considered as personalized medical advice. Lime Ninja Radio is not licensed to render medical advice and should be considered simply the public opinion of Lime Ninja Radio and its guests. Recommendations on specific treatment options are not intended to address any listener's particular medical situation. As always, contact your physician before considering any new treatment.